0: Welcome to From Concept to Creation, the podcast where we invite everyone to uncover the process of research with us. Welcome back everyone. We are so excited to bring you another episode of From Concept to Creation. I'm Kate Morgan, instructional designer at Penn State World Campus. And I'm Jen Jarson, head librarian at Penn State Lehigh Valley. In this episode, we're sharing a conversation with Dr. Nicole Ryerson. She's an assistant professor of psychology at Penn State Lehigh Valley.
1: It was great to talk with Dr. Ryerson. I don't know about you, Kate, but I was so struck by her enthusiasm for research. Actually, I don't think enthusiasm is even a strong enough word. Maybe passion or zeal might be more apt.
0: I know, right? She had me excited about research and she has so much experience with undergraduate research in different roles. She started as an undergraduate in psychology at Penn State Schuylkill, and then she earned her master's and PhD in experimental psychology at the University of Alabama, where she began mentoring undergraduates herself. She even minored in statistical analysis. And now she's a faculty mentoring psychology students at Penn State Lehigh Valley. She has come full circle.
1: (laughs) And the stories she shared really, I thought, showcased important threads and themes related to uncovering research, to making hidden components of the research process more transparent. Like, for example, she talked a lot about the impact and the importance of learning about the process over the content, even more than the content, in order to build a strong foundation. So how to do the research, all the components and steps and stages. And I was also really struck by her drive and her persistence in the face of challenges. And definitely in mentoring.
0: She was adamant about that role that mentoring has played in all the stages of her own path and the insight and effort that she herself puts into her role as a mentor to others.
1: She's, I think, really illustrating, in many ways, what From Concept to Creation is all about, in my mind, and what we want to uncover in these conversations. Let's get to it. So welcome, Dr. Ryerson. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on the podcast. So Dr. Ryerson, maybe you could um, get us started by just telling us a little bit about how you got involved in research in the first place. Absolutely.
2: So, as Kate mentioned, I was an undergraduate student at Penn State School. and there I had two mentors within the psychology department. And because it's such a small commonwealth campus, they were able to involve students from the start of the research project to the end of it. And so, I got involved with a couple of different research projects on that campus. And I was able to help with research design, data collection, running participants through the paradigms that were created, and then also writing up the results of the, the studies and disseminating that information out at research conferences. So I was actually able to attend and present at my first uh, national research conference as an undergraduate student. And so that was really kind of the catalyst for me solidifying my my goal to get into a position where I was able to continue doing research um, as an academic and, and getting into graduate school, being able to talk about my experience
0: as an undergrad. And that was really where all of it started for me. Wow. What, what was your first research project? Like what was the first thing you got involved with?
2: Uh, so the first research project that I got involved with was about uh, reciprocity and kinship, mm-hmm. um, and it was way outside my, my wheelhouse um, in terms of what I was hoping to do in graduate school, but my faculty mentor had a, a huge project that he was doing and he needed some assistance from his undergraduate research assistants for it. Um, So I helped with the project and then we turned it into a poster presentation and presented it at the Society for uh, Personality and Social Psychology down in San Antonio whenever I was an undergraduate student. Um, So I was able to to present that one. And then with my other research mentor, I was actually also doing uh, research on discrimination um, and things about prejudice and diversity so i i really got to be exposed to a lot of different topics in research but then ultimately i took a cognitive psychology class and thought this is this is what i want to do um and so whenever i was looking for a research lab for graduate school i focused on finding something that would allow me to do physiological assessment mm-hmm. and so that's ended that where I ended up was doing a physiological assessment as a graduate student.
1: That sounds so interesting, taking you back to what it was like as an undergraduate. Were you a first-year student, second-year student? Like, did you have to put yourself forward to get involved in these opportunities? How did the first steps take take place?
2: I think that, you know, I look back and I, I thought it was unique at the time. And, and now looking back as a, a faculty member, I know it was really, you know, odd that I knew right away that I wanted to do psychology. I wanted to get a Ph.D. I just wasn't sure what the subject matter was going to be. And so as a first year student, I, I was you know, ready to go. That's psychology was my thing. And um, I see a lot of students who switch their majors more. I feel like that's more common. So I think I was the exception rather than the the rule that I was so invested in psychology from the beginning. Um, but in terms of getting involved in research, I knew I wanted to stay at Penn State School for all four years. Um, so I started to get involved in, in the research and try to make connections with my um, faculty mentors uh, through my first year there. And then I started getting more heavily involved in the research, probably my, my second and third year, whenever I was starting to get more knowledge of the um, for my classes and, and the things that I was getting exposed to. And I think my conference was my third year. Um, so I was a, a junior whenever we went to that conference. Um, by my fourth year, I was I was really collecting data, helping to manage um, participant records and all of those things. So it was definitely a, a full process throughout the full, uh, full four years.
0: Were you involved with like the undergraduate symposiums on campus and I was. things like that? Nice.
2: <laughs> I was. Um, I actually placed and still have the plaque. Um, whenever I... that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if I still have it here or if I brought it Oh, wait, if actually hold on, I'll show you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's in her I know office. The office.
2: is not being video recorded, it's audio, but I still have my my plaque. Wow, from that's the, a nice track. Um, um, so this is whenever I placed at the Penn State Regional Undergraduate Research Symposium. That's um awesome. yeah, April 20th, 2011. Nice. Um, so yeah, I was I've I've been very much so involved mm-hmm. in in the research process from that early stage of my education because it's just something that I've always been heavily invested in.
1: I was um it's so interesting to hear about how committed, how driven, how focused you were from the get-go, it sounds like as soon as you came to college, you knew what subject area you wanted to study, you knew that you wanted to be involved in research, but I, you mentioned a moment ago that that first project you did about reciprocity and kinship, that that was maybe not the subject area you felt most comfortable with, I think you said, or maybe had the most background information already um, about, and I'm wondering How did you, when you were navigating an unfamiliar topic like that, or maybe even a topic you weren't that into, I'd love to hear more about that. How did you develop comfort with it or develop expertise over time?
2: So I think one thing that I I try to explain to my students even now is that a lot of times whenever students get involved in in research, it's probably not going to be a subject matter that that they may necessarily be knowledgeable about or passionate about, but they have to learn before they can go do their own science. They have to learn how to do good science from people who are already doing it. So just really, you can learn about the scientific process and the research process. Um, through projects that are out of your wheelhouse, out of your comfort zone, out of something that you might necessarily be interested in and still gain something so beneficial from just the practice of doing good science. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why I was so willing to get so heavily involved with both of those projects because I wanted to learn how to do research. It didn't matter what I was researching at the time. This was you know, my first initiation into the scientific community. So I just wanted to learn, you know, how do we do these procedural steps so that when I do have the opportunity to research something that's a little bit more in the direction that I'm hoping to go in long term, now I'm prepared to to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I saw it as a, a preparation stage, mm-hmm. and so. Um, This was research that my faculty advisors were doing at the time. And I think that's something that I also try and advertise to my students that if you want to learn how to do good science, jump on these projects that I already have going on. Mm -hmm. They're already rolling so you can jump right in. Um, I'll show you how the, the process works, all of those things. But it's also good for students who maybe don't necessarily know what they want to study um, because it can give them a little bit of an exposure to some of the topics that I'm doing. And sometimes that leads to an offshoot of a project that they end up doing themselves mm-hmm. um, because they were like, oh, hey, Dr. Ryerson, this is a really interesting concept. Have you ever thought about incorporating this other variable that I'm really interested in? And now we've got a side project. Mm-hmm. Now they can throw a variable into my data collection um, paradigm. And now they've got like their own little, you know, project that they're doing mm-hmm. with my guidance, with my mentorship, but it's it's something that they can take ownership of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's you know very akin to what a lot of people experience in graduate school. As psych, for psychology too. Um, most of the time you start as you know a master's student, you jump on the projects that are already ongoing either from your faculty mentor or from other graduate students in the lab. you learn how things are done in the lab, how they they you know go about collecting their data, designing their paradigms, all of those things and then you gradually pick up more and more so that now you're you're doing by the time you get through your master's, thesis and your dissertation and all that stuff. Now you've developed your own program of research um, from learning those processes.
0: So I have a quick question. When you first get started with research and you don't even know what you want to do, um, it's actually a two-part question. Is there like roles you could do? Like I like data or, and what is the time commitment for a brand new undergraduate going? I think I'm interested in research, but I'm also taking, you know, 17 hours.
2: So the process really uh, and the level of involvement that students get into, it really it's on an individual basis. So I try and cater it to what the student is looking for, what they can commit to the projects, how long they they, uh, plan on being on campus for. Um, So, for example, if I've got a student who's planning on being here for all four years and they want to apply to a graduate program that's very neuro-based, I might train them to actually use the EEG system that I have. I'll teach them how to help with hookups and all those types of things, because that's going to be a unique experience that they're not going to get on another campus. And it's going to put them in an excellent position to apply to these, you know, neuro-focused grad programs. So that might be one
0: approach that would help with that student. So the EEG is the the head piece with the probes, right? Yes. Yep. Um okay. Yeah. I just it. Wanna...
2: <laughs> yeah. So I can teach the students how to uh and whenever I was a graduate student, that was actually a huge thing that that was under the purview of my responsibility was training our undergraduate students to collect EEG data. Mm-hmm. Um now this is a new system that I just got over the summer. Um, so I'm planning on doing that again through, you know, the 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 whole research program and the line of research that I'm developing with that equipment, I am planning on training students here at Penn State Lehigh Valley on how to collect EEG data. Now, again, it's students that have the the confidence, the the commitment, the, um, the interest, the desire to do that. Not everybody is interested in doing that component of the research. And I do try and prioritize it for the students that are hoping to apply to like neuro-focused programs because it's gonna benefit them the most, right? They'll get to go to these graduate programs and be like, oh, EEG? Yeah, I'm trained in the the brain vision um, equipment. I know how to do the hookup. I know how to check the impedances. I know it just gives them all these words that that make them uh, an ideal candidate for those graduate labs. Up at University Park, they have this equipment, but those students are also competing with a lot more of each other right? So here at Penn State Lehigh Valley, they're, committing, they're They're not competing with as many students for these research assistant roles. And so they can get this really catered research experience that makes them a very, very competitive, competitive graduate school candidate. Mm-hmm. Now, for students who are looking for something a little bit more casual, I have those roles too. Um, I have students that their only job is I give them a list of topics that I need research papers on, and their job is to just get me peer-reviewed journals that fit these categories um, on these topics. Um, I have students who, you know, might do an annotated bibliography for me. Um, I've got students who are more interested in the survey research that I have going on, but they want to see if they can throw some variables on there. So it's really, it, it can't. I, Personally, for my mentorship style, it can't be a one-size-fits-all. I can't have a student come in and say, okay, this is what my research assistants do, um, because I don't think it benefits me. I think that I'd lose out on a lot of their unique qualities and strengths that would benefit me as a researcher, um, the mentor on that side of the, the, the dyadic relationship there. And it wouldn't benefit them because it's not going to be what they need to get out of the research. It might miss sparking their passion if I just gave them a one size fits all.
0: I really, I really love the idea of uh, recognizing and being interested in what the students are bringing to the table as well as, because I mean, as a student, your defined role is a learner, like you are learning from someone who knows. And so to be in a position where you're saying, hey, I've done a lot of research, but like what is your opinion and what are you interested in? And again, the whole idea of a small campus atmosphere, I ha- what was that like for you to go from like Schuylkill, where you were like part of a very small community to the University of Alabama, where you like, were now in a major, you know, SEC university where there's thousands of students. Uh, so
2: I think for for me it wasn't as jarring as you would expect because I was born and raised in a, in a pretty populated area. so I think that for me I went from you know a high school that I graduated with like something like 600 people mm-hmm. and then I went to Penn State School Bowl and it was kind of like I felt, I don't know. I still get like warm and fuzzy feelings whenever I think back to it. Like, I felt like very, very kind of insulated and protected and, and invested in. Like, I, I felt invested in whenever I was a Penn State school school student. I felt like all of my professors knew my name. They knew my goals. They helped to facilitate my goals. They helped to kind of, you know, lead me along this path. And then whenever I got to graduate school, I felt very confident. You know, I felt like, okay, I have all of the tools. To to make me successful in this position because I was invested in by my undergraduate research mentors and professors, and then once I got to graduate school, it's it's much more um, you're much more niche. Right. You're not in these you're not in these big lecture halls of 400 intro students. Instead, you're in these seminars with like 12 other graduate students that are in your concentration. So it wasn't as jarring as I would have expected it to be. Um, For me personally, I loved being at a small university for my undergraduate for all four years. Um, And then going to a bigger university where, you know, the graduate experience, I had an excellent pool of data to collect from, like the sample sizes were beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a lot of, there was a a huge array of faculty members within psychology that were able to give their expertise and their training. So I was able to get, um, you know, the, the additional degree in statistical analyses. I was able to do statistical consulting. So for me, it was just, it was perfect. The, the the relationship between my small undergraduate and my large graduate program.
1: It's been so interesting to hear about, you know, this path that you started on from the time you were a first year student, because it sounds to me, this wasn't my experience as an undergraduate, it sounds to me like you were really focused, really motivated, really knew where you wanted to go. And you had Um, some significant relationships with your mentors that helped you get there. You know, you talked about being, um, feeling so invested in, and I'm wondering if there are any experiences you can reflect on as an undergrad or maybe even as a grad student where your dedication or motivation faltered, or maybe there were some like failures or missteps, you know, that shook your confidence a little bit and how maybe your mentor helped you or how you overcame those things on your own. I'm so happy you asked
2: this question because I was trying (laughs) to figure out how we could segue into this so it didn't appear like I had everything just all figured out. Um, So as I went through my undergrad, I was so Mm -hmm. self-assured. You know, I took that cognitive psychology class and I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to be able to use EEG and research. I want to get trained in all this equipment that bypasses all the subjective nature of psychology. And I just, I want to do the inner workings of, of, you know, what's happening with people. And then I applied to graduate school and then I didn't get in.
1: So my first round of graduate
2: (laughs) applications, I didn't get in. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just absolutely took me from like what I thought was my highest high and smacked me down to like reality. Right. And I needed it. I looking back, (laughs) I I needed it. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. I think I needed to feel challenged. I needed Mm -hmm. to feel um, that my dedication and my motivation would, how, how would it withstand in the mm-hmm. face of like such a devast, what I felt at the time was such a devastating adversity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I graduate from Penn State School I thought that I would go right off to graduate school. I mean, like mm-hmm. I was already looking at places that I would live, at the places mm-hmm. that I was applying. I mean, all these things. And what do I do after graduation? And I move out of my apartment in Schuylkill I moved back home, Mm -hmm. I had to go back to my childhood bedroom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it just so happened that um, my brother and I were boomerang kids at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. So we both moved back into our childhood bedrooms in our 20s. -hmm. And nothing will humble you faster than having to like, be right next door to your older brother, you know, after after having all these things happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank goodness they did because I still stayed engaged in manuscript preparation with my research mentors. I worked some jobs that were outside of the field of of psychology so that I could. I was like, I'm still going to try and apply to graduate school. I'm going to save up money. I'm going to do all of these things. Um, And then I applied to graduate school for the next round. I applied to five programs. I got invited for an interview to one. And I got accepted by that one program. Wow. And it was the University of Alabama. And they have a highly respective, highly competitive um, PhD program. It came with a tuition waiver, So I didn't have to take out any additional loans. It came with a stipend um, where I had a living stipend uh, because I was working as a research assistant. I was working as a teaching assistant. Uh, and it was where I needed to be. Um, and on a personal note, if I hadn't failed my first uh, go around for graduate school, I wouldn't have met my husband um, because we met in that year. Um, that I was living at home and so you know kind of looking back um, I'm so thankful that my path wasn't as linear Mm -hmm. as my confident undergrad self would have had it be Um, because with your plaque and your winning (laughs) like, like, this is just gonna be this is it yeah you know and so I'm I'm extremely grateful Mm -hmm. that I did not have a non-linear path Mm -hmm. um, because the trajectory would have looked very different and I don't think um, I don't think it would have brought me full circle to to where I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tell students that all of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, students come into to my office and they're distraught and they're just devastated that things aren't going in this this nice linear path. And that's the story that I tell students. And I save that one. Right for the students that are having these moments of crisis, When you really need
1: it. Yeah. Yeah. Like
2: I I pull it out. Right. They they usually they usually come in and they're like, Dr. Ryerson, like, how did you do this? Like it just seems so flawless. It seems like it's just, you know, all of the ducks. And I just tell them about how I was so devastated that I was like hysterical in like my childhood bedroom and and just, you know, I didn't know how all of this was gonna pan out. Mm -hmm. And It's something that I've seen as a theme as I've gone through my academic career up into this point is I've talked to so many people that that's their story, Mm -hmm. that there's these major disruptions or there's these major pitfalls or, or whatever. And now looking back on it, it's like, oh, it wasn't that character building. Um, (laughs) But at the time it feels like life ending. And so I think it's important for students to recognize that, um, that is more common than otherwise, you know, that, that these things are are
0: par for the course. And staying focused, like the resiliency and persistence that come from such a humbling experience, you know, um, what do you mean? I didn't make it into grad school. I'm a superstar. <laughs> yes. Because, you know, the thing
2: is too, you're, you're on a campus with, you know, 900 students you feel you know I think that there's a, a tendency to feel like, okay, I've got this like mm-hmm. you know I'm I'm doing because I think we're always doing the social comparison and and so because I was comparing to the other fish in this pond, I think that I didn't realize I was too micro-focused, right? Like I was the the vice president of the psychology club and I placed at the regional symposium and, you know, I'm I'm engaging in this research. And what do you mean I didn't get into grad school? I've presented in a national conference. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that it was a very, it's an experience that I needed to have to, to fully recognize you know, what it took to persevere through, through all of these things.
0: Now, did they give you feedback on why you didn't get accepted? Or was this just you sitting in your bedroom going, well, maybe I need to take a breath. <laughs> nope.
2: There was, there was no feedback. Um, I remember I, I just kind of, I think I took, um, my approach to the applications that I put in, like looking back, I can imagine the advice I would have given to myself as an undergraduate student. Like you're applying to too much to one geographic area. You're limiting yourself because you don't want to move away from from these areas. Um, you're applying to programs that um, that are like top, 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 top tier programs that you're probably competing with people that have worked on NIH grant funded projects, um, that their mentors are are familiar with the mentors at those labs. They've already been in contact. You know, there there was a lot of advice that I could imagine that I probably would have given myself, Mm -hmm. you know, as a student, um, apply to more programs. Why are you only picking three out of the hundreds that are available to you? Um, So looking back, I, I can see why I didn't you know, get into those, <laughs> those programs. Um, but they didn't give me any feedback. I was just one of the ones that was rejected. I got the stock letter of like, thank you for your interest, but we're, we're not going to be pursuing your application further. Um, got it through email at varying points. And it's just, each one was just like, oh, you <laughs> oh, know, <laughs> knife
1: in the heart. Yeah.
2: Yes. Um, but again, I mean, I, and now I tell students, you don't need to have this critically acclaimed you know, packet of materials that you send off, you don't need, you know, eight offers out of the 10 programs that you apply to, you need one interview, you need one acceptance, that's all you need to, to get into to graduate school. And um, so yeah, I think that I needed that experience as a student, but I think I also needed that experience as a mentor now to be able to tell my students, mm-hmm. you know, hey, it's these things happen. You know, and and I have to tell you, my favorite researchers in the field—they all have nonlinear experiences. You know, and and in some way, it's impacted how they approach research. It's it's impacted how they approach mentorship. It's just impacted their the way they approach their careers in ways that they wouldn't have gotten from a, a more linear um, path to success.
0: So you did some undergraduate research, then you had a a, a break. <laughs> Yes, in the famous words of Ross, we were on a break. Yeah. It was an (laughs) unintended, unintended break. Yes. And then you ended up at the university or no, excuse me. You made it to the university of Alabama. You were accepted, interviewed, and you, you killed it. And, um, is that where you found your, your interest in your current research? Like, and how did that happen? How did you zero in on what research you wanted to do?
2: Yeah. So, um, for, for, For my my purposes, I was more interested in looking for the methodologies, like my focus was finding a mentor that would allow me to learn about the methodologies I wanted to use in my research. I wasn't so much interested in finding um, a content matter, like a topic specifically, I just knew I wanted to do EEG research. And so what I did whenever I was looking to program for programs to apply to, I looked for researchers who were doing EEG research within these PhD programs, and I would kind of compare and contrast the work that they were doing to see what I gravitated towards. And the mentor, um, Dr. Philip Gable, that I graduated towards, he was doing a lot of motivation and emotion research with EEG components. And so that's the lab I ended up in. And at first, my research was focused on things like Um, impulsivity and and motivation and personality traits and all of these things. And just kind of naturally, these, um, these topics of impulse control and motivation, I was like, oh, it'd be kind of interesting to draw in substance use, you know, because substance use is heavily dependent on impulse control, motivation, emotional components. And I gravitated towards alcohol use. And um, I was not lacking for subjects at the University of Alabama and the undergraduate population. They are known as a big party school. Um, and so it kind of naturally transitioned into aspects of, of alcohol use. What's the, the neurophysiological correlates of students um, being exposed to alcohol cues in their environment? And so my line of research kind of developed um, from there. And I had some pro- side projects that I engaged in. Um, as uh, a graduate student as well. There was, um, you know, a project that I was a statistical consultant on where it was a clinical sample of of people with uh, ADHD. Um, There was a side project that I did that had to do with the reproducibility of psychological science, Um, but mostly it was neurophysiological and... um, physiological correlates of, of alcohol variables.
1: I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on how you advocated for yourself as a mentee, how you were mentored, like what that relationship looked like and how you made it work for you. If you I don't know, I guess I'm just thinking, how proactive did you have to have to be to speak up for yourself in those relationships?
2: So I have to say that um, as an undergraduate, um I don't think I, I really don't remember feeling the need to advocate for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that the relationship that I had with um, Dr. Charlie Law and Dr. Corey Shear, it was very much um, they they kind of had this mentality of come walk with me, mm-hmm. right? Come walk with me as as we go through this, and and I'll answer your questions. I'll I'll help you know guide you through the process. Whereas once you get to graduate school you know, it's more of like you're an investment for, for them, right? Mm -hmm. You're contributing to this body of work. Now, show me what you got, Mm -hmm. you know, take up the mantle, train these undergraduate research assistants, Mm -hmm. Um, come with me. Whenever you run into a problem, don't come to me with the problem, come to me with the problem and and solutions that you've Mm -hmm. come up with. It's a very, very different relationship. Now, that that's my experience. Mm-hmm. I had students um, that were my peers as a grad as a graduate student. That their mentor was very different than mine. You know, it you need to find a mentor who's going to work for for you and and a situation that that you're going to. Um, vibe with. And Mm -hmm. there were plenty of instances of of students getting in and being like, you know what, this does not work for me, you know, let me switch mentors, let me, you know, move some things around and, and so that does happen for me I stayed with my mentor through the entire um, five years that, that I was at the University of Alabama, but it was just a very different um environment and you do have to you know advocate for yourself like Mm -hmm. hey I've got this research project that you know I really want to do I'd like to take first authorship of this paper let me you know let me kind of really um go full force into this this project I want this to be my pet project Mm -hmm. you know and and let me turn this into my master's and let me turn this into my dissertation and and so you do have to advocate a little bit more for yourself so that you can start to develop your your own line and program Mm -hmm. of of research and I mean I was I was really lucky I came out of um I mean I say lucky but it's You know, you you work hard. Mm -hmm. You work hard for these opportunities, and so by the time I I finished grad school, I had two, three, four, five publications Mm -hmm. um, as a graduate student, and they ranged from some first author, some second or third author. And I mean, you really you Mm -hmm. work your tail off for those opportunities, Um, and. My mentor had anywhere from three to, I think at one point, there were four or five of us. Mm-hmm. You know, so so now their time is also divvied up between all of these people that are trying to get master's theses done. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get their dissertations done. Um, my mentor was getting tenure at the time. So it's just a much um, higher stakes game that you're playing in,
1: in graduate school, I would say. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I'm struck too by, it seems like across all contexts, everything you've mentioned, I'm noticing a theme of like, how much self-awareness it seems like you were able to practice in, you know, you came, you knew you wanted to get involved in research, but you already approached it in terms of like, I want to learn the process. I'm not so worried about the content. Um, And maybe, you know, figuring out how to translate your lessons learned or your takeaways about those processes those steps in the research process into new contexts, you know, and your self-awareness about like, oh, I, I, I needed this um, this break to, to get on the right path, for example, in the end, I guess I'm wondering like, how much of that is like, oh, hindsight is 2020 and you can see it now versus how much were you able to recognize and practice that self-awareness in the moment? I think it's a, it's, it's a little bit of both. I think Mm -hmm. hindsight is absolutely 2020. I
2: think that, you know, especially as a, uh, cognitive researcher, kind of psych, social psych researcher, you know, I think, um, I completely recognize that our brain likes to knit this pretty picture and be like, remember you felt this way the whole time. (laughs) Um, and you know, there's plenty of research to show that that is absolutely not the case. Um, so I think that, you know, if, if I were to really look back on it, I'm sure that there were moments of just, and, and I can say, I can not even, I'm sure I can say with absolute certainty, um, there were moments of, of pure panic, like, okay. of am I doing the right thing? Um, you know, I submitted my first, first author publication and the reviewers just tore me apart. Okay. Um, you know, I had this, what I thought was a great idea and my advisor, like just smacked that down. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, there were moments of of just having to kind of gather back up the reins, Mm -hmm. right. And be like, okay, let's reassess. So now looking back on it, you know, you can see how it was all like this really nice trajectory that was happening, stepping back, but Mm -hmm. you know, there was all this variability in how I felt about these things as, as the day-to-day, right. Mm -hmm. Um, Looking back at the patterns over the years, it seems a lot smoother than what it felt like. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were days that, you know, a couple of my, my colleagues and I joke around, we were, still in contact, a lot of my lab mates and I, where it's just like, we were just like, what are we doing? (laughs) Um, You know, what, what level of, of torture did we want to sign ourselves up for? Like, Uh this is just brutal. Um, Because, you know, there were times that you're in Three-hour meetings with your mentor, where he turns his screen to you and starts editing, you know, something that you mm-hmm. send him, and he's just like, "Let me show you all the areas of just, mm-hmm. you know, um, markup that I'm going to make on this document that you mm-hmm. submitted." And and so it it was. I mean, it, it like I said, it's a combination of hindsight is twenty twenty, but mm-hmm. also you know the reality of the situation was there was a lot of moments along the way where you're just like, "Okay, let me let me take a deep breath and mm-hmm. and." Go back at this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I am really thankful, though, because while I was doing all this stuff as the mentee, I was starting my mentorships Mm -hmm. Um, because you're talking about a graduate program where you've got four graduate students in the lab. And then you've got a team of undergraduate researchers um, that are working underneath the graduate students to help facilitate the research that's going on we would each have kind of our own team of undergraduate researchers that were trained on our specific projects to help facilitate the the research process so you know i was training undergraduate research assistants on Um, participant etiquette. Mm -hmm. I was training them on how to do behavioral studies where they had to have them come in, sit on computers, how to use our software programs, how to run them through the projects. Um, I was also teaching them how to do physiological assessment. You know, here's how you do a 64-channel hookup. Here's how you do a 32-channel hookup. Here's how you use facial sensors. Um, Here's how you monitor the, the Um, participants from the observation room. Um, I mean, and it was everything from training my my research assistants on how to dress when they come into the lab, Mm -hmm. because we would have students wearing shorts, and then they put on the lab coats, and the lab coat was longer than the shorts, and that's not a good (laughs) look, right? Um, So it was everything from that all the way up to how do you handle problems whenever you have a research participant who comes in and they're just not kind of doing what they're supposed to as a research participant. So I was getting to do that on the research side, but I was also starting to teach classes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the University of Alabama, once you take teaching of psychology and you get to a certain point in your degree program, you start teaching classes. They start you off with lab programs, um, like you know, lab classes where you're assisting the main um, professor. But by the time I did my dissertation, I was already teaching Psych 100. I was already teaching experimental psychology. And so I was getting to mentor mentor students within the classroom, but I was also doing the mentorship um, of of research students. And that just gave me so much confidence of, you know, whenever I started to apply for faculty positions towards the end of my time at the University of Alabama, I knew that I wanted to go, I didn't want to just go for a teaching position. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to just go for a research position where I'd be teaching one to two classes a semester. I wanted to find something that was a delicate balance between those two things because I couldn't give up either. Um, so I was really thankful for that experience as a graduate student as well.
0: Um, I have a a question. So you've had these dips and valleys and then, you know, your advisors potentially tearing apart some of your hard earned work. And at the same time, you're mentoring, like who did, who helped you move forward? I mean, you didn't sit alone in your bedroom when you didn't accept, get accepted to say like how did you not give up? How did did someone like, did your mentors reach back out to you? And then you get to the university of Alabama and do you feel like an imposter? I'm training undergraduates, but I'm feeling like I am messing up everything I do. Like, yeah. How did those things? Um, so it's,
2: it's so funny. Cause like, I'm getting emotional thinking about it. It's like my mom,
1: you know, <laughs> I mean,
2: like I still need my mom and mm-hmm. now, um, but like my mom, I hundred percent. It was my mom. Um, my research mentors, as an undergraduate student, they they kept reaching out to me, um, and we kept up that relationship. If I called them, they always answered. If I texted them, they answered. If I emailed them, they answered. They were they helped to keep me involved in the 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 research. They still wrote my letters of recommendation. They were a huge part of keeping me going on the academic side. But in terms of like my, my sense of self being absolutely shattered, my mom helped me back together, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, and so absolutely that, and then graduate school, um, my husband. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we had met during my, at the very beginning of my unattended gap year, and then whenever I moved down to Alabama, he actually moved down a couple months later. He got a job at the University of Alabama um, as an electrician. He led a team of of, of like uh, renovation folks, and and he's much more he's much more trade than I am. Thank goodness. Um, and uh, we could not be more opposite on the academic spectrum. Um, so he moved down, and and he was kind of the the one that kind of helped. In terms of when I got home at the end of a long day, it was him, you know, because we were 12 hour drive away 16 hour drive, whatever it was I've blocked probably that out um, away from our, our family so it was. You know, he was kind of the, the rock, the foundation that, that I relied on to the point where whenever I was getting ready. So one of the things that you have to do in grad school, you do presentations all the time, at least in my graduate program. Um, brown bag presentations, um, master's defenses. You've got like two meetings you've got to do with that. Your dissertation, you've got three. You're constantly presenting to your peers, lab meetings, all its presentations all the time. And whenever I would be prepping for a presentation, my husband would sit in the living room with our three dogs and I would present it to him and he would like ask me fake questions and all of this stuff. So, um, yeah, so I think that he he played a huge role in it. And I I tell my students that, too, like, you've, you, you know, having that that support system was just for me, it was just paramount. It just it made it made a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So my my dissertation is actually dedicated. There's a dedication at the beginning of my dissertation to my mom and my husband.
1: That's wonderful. Wow. I'm thinking about, you know, building on what you're describing about all these different relationships, professional and personal. And I guess I'm wondering um, that you've had that you've benefited from, you've learned from, I'm wondering, like, what pieces of those you've taken and apply most often or find most valuable in what, in the moves that you choose to make with your own mentees now, years later? Yeah. Um, so
2: I, and, and kind of incorporating the, the last part of Kate's question into this Mm -hmm. too, is that, you know, I recognize that the imposter effect is, Mm -hmm. is, is something that I think people struggle with um throughout their careers and I think that's a good thing because it means you're continuously challenging yourself and putting yourself in a position that you're doing these new things as part of your career you're keeping it fresh so you do feel like you know um am I am I in the position to create these like collaborative research labs am I in a position to create a podcast am I in know like you know so it's like I think that if you're feeling the imposter effect um it's a good thing. It it means you're doing all of these these new things. And and so in my mentorship relationships with my students, I, I kind of tell them like, hey, it doesn't matter where you're starting. It doesn't matter if you're uncomfortable or super comfortable. If you're comparing, if you're uncomfortable, but you see all these other people that look like they're cool, calm and collected, they're probably not. Um, They're like ducks sitting on the water. They look really calm on the surface, but their legs are really going underneath. Um, And so I think that in my mentorship style, I've kind of I, I try and keep all of these experiences, I try to remain really cognizant of everything that I've experienced up to this point and how my mentors made me feel and what did they do to make me feel really supported and insulated and nurtured and, and and um, you know, what do they do to Make sure I knew whenever I was doing something like incorrect, but so I knew I had to correct this thing and think about these other things, but I didn't feel disheartened. You know, I I try and take little bits and pieces from each of them, whether it's what to do or what not to do. Like I I remember vividly the things that I hated Mm -hmm. um, as a a mentee. And so I try to avoid those things or reframe them. Um, So it's definitely my mentorship style is a piecemeal. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an amalgamation of all the people that, that I came up from under, but I'm also being mentored now.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean,
2: I, I'm still a mentee. Um, you know, my my colleagues at, at Penn State, I'm constantly going to them for for advice or feedback, and so I'm continuing to learn from the people that I surround myself by, um, whether it's at Penn State, Lehigh Valley, whether it's the professional organizations that I'm a part of, whether it's these like really cool offshoots, you know, of things that I get engaged in, I, I just, I'm constantly trying to learn how can I do better in these types of, of relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a true amalgamation.
0: It's really interesting you mentioned some professional organizations, because I know like when I was in college, there were some student professional organizations and I saw on your resume that you're involved in, you know, several adult yes. <laughs> professional <laughs> organizations. Um, what do they do for you and, and how important is it for students to get involved in those types of things?
2: So um, the biggest benefit that I get is is networking. Um, And I think that's the biggest benefit that students can get as well as networking, Um, because if you run into a situation where um, you need advice that's outside of your area of expertise or you're looking for somebody to collaborate on a project like, hey, I've got this project, but I'm missing this piece. You can reach out to those networks of individuals and say, hey, this is a project I'm I'm working on. Um, I need somebody who's well-versed in virtual reality environments. Is anybody interested in in hopping onto this, this project? Um, so networking is a big one, but also I think being a part of these professional organizations kind of keeps your finger on the pulse of what's happening within the scientific community. Um, you know, it's like anything else. We, we go through um, waxes and wanes of, of topics in terms of what should we all be focusing on, what should we all be uh, trying to incorporate into our research Uh, And I think that if you are involved in these these networks of folks, you have a better idea of what's happening within your scientific community. Um, So, for example, uh, reproducibility of psychological science is something that's been happening for the last uh, number of years. Um, So I was able to get involved in a a project um, that actually ended up getting published in science because it was this huge collaborative effort. And that was that was huge. Um, There's also a push towards now the the new thing that's coming up is pre-registering of studies. And so within the context of psychology, essentially what pre-registering means is that you're submitting your project Um, like a a formed manuscript saying this is the project that I'm about to do um, to these publishers and they accept or reject the publication based off of the scientific methodologies, the soundness of your idea, your a priori hypotheses before the results are even public, before the results are even um, analyzed, the data is collected. And so the reason why this is so important is because it prevents a lot of the intentional or unintentional ethical the ethics as it applies to data um, from being an issue, right? Because you're publishing based off of not whether or not you achieved a significant statistical result, it's instead you're getting published on the soundness of your science. And so being involved in these professional communities just kind of lets you be a part of, of, of what's happening um, in these pushes. And um, so I think it's important for me to stay involved in them. I think it's really important for students to get involved, um, so that whenever they go to these conferences, they can say, oh, hey, I'm so-and-so. I'm a, a researcher, undergraduate researcher at Penn State High Valley. I work with Dr. Ryerson. I'm here presenting on this poster. Um, you know, I see that you're part of the student committee uh, SPS, uh, SPSP. How can I get involved in that? Um, and then whenever it's time for them to apply to graduate school, hey, I happen to know somebody who sits on this committee and I know that they publish with a faculty advisor that I'm hoping to apply to work for their lab. Would you mind, you know, reaching out on my, my behalf and and maybe writing a letter of recommendation or or something? And so the benefits are, are immeasurable if they're able to get involved in these things.
1: Just building on that, it makes me think, you know, um... Are there within these organizations that you're a part of, or maybe other networks that you're a part of? Are there is there resource sharing among mentors in order to help each other mentor students better? You know, maybe you have a student who you're not having the best mentoring relationship with, and you're not the right fit for them, or maybe you just want to help advance that student to another level. How do you as a mentor help develop your mentoring skill set? I guess
2: 100%. I mean, I mean we it's kind of like a big think tank. It's it's no longer this kind of like we're all silos competing with each other. I think mm-hmm. that there's a much more especially in psychology. I can't, you know, I'm not sure about the other sciences, but with psychology you know, I think that there's a much more casual collaboration going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm part of Facebook groups mm-hmm. um, where it's like uh, teaching of psychology. So, you know, how do you get your students engaged in active um, learning? I'm teaching a unit on development. Does anybody have anything that they can share so that I can make it more tangible for my students? And you get like hundreds of responses of people mm-hmm. like, I'll send you my materials. Like, let me sh- let me share with you my recorded lecture, all of these things. Same thing on the, the research menu mentorship side. Um, Through my collaboration with another faculty member at Penn State Schuylkill, she had a student who's really interested in neuro topics in psychology. She also has experience with neuro topics. However, my colleague is more on the animal neuro side, so animal models. So she said, hey, can can I give this student your email address? Can he reach out to you? him and I have had Zoom meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I'm an extra mentor for him to help guide him through the, the process in um, these topics that she didn't necessarily feel well-versed in. I do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I had a student come up to me and say, hey, I'm really interested in sleep studies. I have no experience with sleep studies, but one of my colleagues that I went to graduate school with is a clinical sleep researcher. Let me give you their email address. Um, so I think that you're know you you just you're constantly doing that kind of thing for your student. You're constantly saying like, hey, I can mentor you on, on certain aspects of your process. I want to be involved in your process. I want to be a part of your journey. Um, but let me bring in some people that I think are going to be able to give you more, more sustenance to it, that, that they're going to be able to, to give you more content specific or area specific advice and increase the network of people that you can rely on.
0: That is cool. Um, I can't believe we've been talking as long as we have <laughs> about all of this mentorship, which is is completely fascinating. But I also want to um, just create a, a small area really quickly where you kind of explain some of the research that you do and maybe mm-hmm. some interesting stuff you've done. I think we should just work that the in. Same. Yeah, like no one knows that you actually research. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, so um, my my current body of of research, um, kind of like I guess my bread and butter is looking at neurophysiological correlates of exposure to alcohol cues. Um, That's my most longstanding research. And and what that means in in more basic languages is if we expose, I especially use college students, if we expose college students to things that are associated with alcohol, what's happening in their brain? are we seeing areas of motivation increase in activity? Are we seeing areas of approach, meaning that they wanna go towards the stimuli increase in activity? And the reason why that's so important is because um, the wider body of scientific literature suggests that if you see increases in activity in these areas, they're at a higher risk to use and misuse alcohol in real environments. So if we can identify either high risk folks or if we can even find ways to maybe diminish those neurological responses, can we find ways to change their behavior later or identify people who might need help changing their behavior leader. So that's kind of the, the larger context of my research that I've been working on since I was a graduate student. Now, project that I'm really excited about that's going to be coming up at the end of the fall, beginning of spring, is I'm going to be incorporating virtual reality. And so I'm about to film an immersive bar scene that's a 360 point of view. Um, and so I'm going to have students be placed in this immersive alcohol-themed environment while they're wearing the EEG cap. Wow. and um so we're going to look at some some variables related to that environment compared to a more neutral environment while also comparing more traditional means of cue exposure so like the static images that i usually use in my my research
1: i wonder in just our last couple minutes if you have any thoughts on what it's like to mentor students in content with which they might already have some comfort, familiarity, personal experience, and try and get them to see that from a more academic or analytical or research oriented perspective.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges that I have when students come in and they want to do research with me, especially if they find my topics interesting, is the first thing I have to have them do is scale down their ideas. Because <laughs> from the outset, it can it's like they're like, I want to solve all of the problems, mm-hmm. right? And so it's hard for them to recognize when they're looking at this formed program of research that my research is actually dissecting little pieces of these these ideas and, and, you know, just these little variables, you know, as they relate to the larger problem. So even though my program of research is talking about a lot of these big issues, the actual studies that I'm doing is, is focusing in on a small subsection of these problems of these issues. So the first thing that I have to do with my students is kind of help them recognize that. Right. Um, Start thinking in that academic sense of, okay, what what can we use to to hone in on these ideas Um, and then helping them seeing it from an academic perspective. I had one student who started off with an honors project in my psych 100 class, and it was while I was collecting in the height of these behavioral and psychological correlates of well-being for COVID. And she was interested in um, more um, immunology, like how COVID affected susceptibility um, and stress and all of these these kind of things and how it related to immunology. And so as part of her honors project, I had her write an essay, a review essay. Um, That review essay turned into her having a really well-developed idea of some variables she wanted to look at. Um, So I allowed her access to the data that I was collecting. We found a proxy variable that wasn't immunology specifically, but it was very similar to what she was thinking. Um, So we found a really creative idea to get at what she was um, interested in studying. And she is now first author on a manuscript that she is shopping around at undergraduate research journals. Um, and so she's looking; she was looking at the impact of stress on health behaviors related to COVID-19 susceptibility. Um, it's currently under review at an undergraduate-focused journal. So that was like one example of, of mm-hmm. bringing a student in. And again, I think that goes back to what you were asking about before. Like, how do you get them to approach this topic from an element of science? Mm-hmm. Not bringing subjective, anecdotal, you know, whatever. And I guess my answer to that is, you know, a lot of really good scientists, they might bring some area of subjectivity to like, I think this is interesting, so I'm going to study it, but also how to remain impartial as a researcher so that you're letting the data speak for itself. So teaching students how to do that is is also a really, really rewarding but challenging part of the, the mentorship process as well, especially given my subject matter.
0: Yeah, I really do also love, you know, as as we have evolved, we, we've gone from being completely shut down in COVID to like virtual reality. You can create environments and run additional testing. And, and I know that there has to be a caveat that this is like a virtual environment, but what an amazing opportunity to like be able to put people in a situation that, that you couldn't really monitor before. You know, you can't really just go down to the pub and be like, all right, everybody put your caps on. Yeah. And- <laughs> I mean, I could. I'd love to. I'd need a lot of grant
2: funding. Um, You know, the ecological validity would be out of this world. Um, You know, these are the things I dream of post-tenure, right? Um, That's whenever I'll really start putting the crazy ideas out there, like, hear me out. I need 20, EG caps. I need you to cover a bar tab. That's going to be really substantial. And I'm going to need like two days
1: off after that. Like, you know, um, I'm pretty sure there's a funding agency out there for that. Yeah. percent oh, there is.
2: Uh, no, but the, the, the growing technology is, is creates, um, new opportunities and new challenges as us as researchers.
0: So before we go, um. Is there anything you would say to students who are interested in getting started with research or who want to take their research to the next level? And then one more. um, What do you wish someone had said to you?
2: Um, So first, my advice for students who want to get started in research or take their research to the next level, I would say start with um, your professors. In um the classes that they're teaching subject matter that you're interested in and is kind of like at least broadly the background of the, the research you're interested in, um, start with them. And then uh, I would also say take a look at what research what uh research resources your campus offers, whether it's um, you know, kind of like the undergraduate research com- committee, events, brown bags, things that you can attend. Um, just start looking to see what communities are existing within your university campus setting that you can reach out in and get involved in. I think the biggest thing is there's so many students who walk around with these great ideas and they just don't go anywhere because they don't get they don't talk to anybody about them because they're worried. What if I talk to the wrong person? Just talk to somebody about it because we're in academia because we, we love this. Like we get excited about it, we thrive off of it. Um, we're, we're deprived from so much of it because students don't don't express these ideas to us. So just start with someone and they will help guide you. So I guess my biggest piece of advice is tell somebody, even if it's the wrong person, they'll help get you to the right person something that i wish someone had said to me um this is going to be so unscientific and just really not um probably what you guys would expect but just enjoy it Mm -hmm. right like enjoy the process more um Find things to enjoy along the way. Uh, Don't lose sight of the things that bring you joy and and don't get so ingrained in it that your happiness is fully dependent on where you are in, in this process, right? Like be invested in it so that you're motivated and you're dedicated, but don't make it your full identity, right? Like I think that for a long time, I did that. I think for a long time, it was just my sense of self was so invested in it that whenever I did hit these pitfalls, it was kind of hard to pull myself out of it. Right. And I think that if I had compartmentalized a little bit better and had a separate stream of my self identity, that was bringing me, you know, more investment and joy outside of the, the, I don't know, just fully digging in. I don't know. I think it
0: would have been a little bit easier at times. Keeping a sense of yourself is so important moving forward. Cause I, again people are figuring out who they are in college and you know you you start to be like am I a researcher and how does a researcher dress and how does a researcher you yes know, do they wear glasses and it's like but you're you you so are learning you kind of do these things
2: yeah you are you and and I think that um you know, everybody uses work-life balance as such a throwaway topic, but it's Mm -hmm. so important to maintain. I mean, as a graduate student, you could find me in the lab 7 p.m. on a Friday night, like in there pouring over, making sure that my my reaction time assessments were accurate to the millisecond, you know? And it's just, that was so unnecessary, (laughs) you you know, (laughs) you know, overkill. And I think that, you know, I would have been better served, you know, maybe taking like an art class or engaging in more yoga class, you know? So I think, you know, always maintain that, that sense of, of self, have that work-life balance.
1: Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation and super fun. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Ryerson. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much for, for having me and for, for everybody who's listening, you know, I just encourage everybody to reach out to me if there's anything that struck a chord uh, with
1: you and you want to chat about it further. Um, my is always open. That's such a generous offer. And hey, listeners, if you have any of your own stories that you'd like to share about mentoring or your experience learning about process, or maybe your persistence in the face of research challenges, we would love to hear from you. Contact us at fc2c at psu.edu. That's fc2c at psu.edu. And if you have any questions, themes, or guests that you'd like to suggest for a future episode, let us know. And don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode to see Dr. Ryerson's contact info, as well as some resources that came up in our conversation. Stay tuned for our next episode of
0: From Concept to Creation. Bring your curious mind. Thank you so much for listening to From Concept to Creation. This podcast would not be possible without the support of Penn State University and its amazing population of curious
1: minds. Uncovering the process and inner workings of research can sometimes be messy, but it's also rewarding and so interesting. As always, we want you, our listeners, to be part of this community. So please send us your comments and your ideas. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite listening
0: platform and tune in for the next episode.